0: Good morning. Good morning. I, I want to start uh, with a story for us. It's an it's a old story from 1958. It was a short story written by Langston Hughes called Thank You, Ma'am. And The reason I want to start with the story is because this story is a story of grace, and it's kind of grace that makes you feel uncomfortable. So there's two characters characters in this story, a boy named Roger and a large woman with a large purse named Luella Bates Washington Jones. Luella is walking alone at night after a long shift at work. Roger runs up and tries to snatch her purse from her. And before he can get away, Luella grabs the boy and won't let him go. He is caught. She seems like uh, the kind of lady people used to refer to as a battle axe. Luella asks Roger why he tries to snatch her bag, and after telling a couple lies, which she calls him on it, he comes clean he wants money to buy a pair of stylish blue suede shoes. So in our days, that would be like him wanting to buy some Nikes. And at this point in the story, we don't have any sympathy for this young boy. He's a thief, and his actions... Um, his action wasn't one of need, it was just straight up done out of greed. And Roger assumes that is getting ready to haul him to jail, but instead of sh- instead she brings him home with her, washes his face, and tells him that she knows what it's like to want things you can't get. Then instead of a lecture, Loella cooks a- him a meal, complete with a dessert, her behavior, totally unexpected, has a strange effect on Roger. When they first came into her apartment, Luella had laid her purse on the daybed where he could easily grab it and bolt, but instead he finds that he no longer wants to. Instead, he hears himself, ask Luella if she needs something to go to the store to get her milk, but she just deflects the question. As they eat, she doesn't drill him about his life or ask him any embarrassing questions. She just talks to him about her job uh-huh, at the hotel, beauty shop, and, and the interesting women who come in. She cuts him half of her cake and urges him to eat more. And here I'm going to read just a couple of Hugh's words. He says, when they finished eating, she got up and said, now here, take these $10 and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out of the street as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something else other than thank you, ma'am, to Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones, but although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that as he turned at the foot of the barren stoop and looked up at the large woman at, in the door. Then she shut the door. End of quote. So you see, Roger receives from Luella the, uh, the opposite of what, what he deserves. Like, he broke the law, yet Luella gave him warmth, welcome, and even reward. Uh, she doesn't ignore Roger's transgression, but she doesn't punish him either. And As we enter this text today, as we enter our passage, keep this story in mind. Keep this story in mind, because behind every interaction, there is a God of grace. A God who doesn't just ignore our sin, and a God who pays for it himself. So let's jump in. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 7, and starting in verse 1. So grab your Bible and go to chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about it in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And if you remember, that's because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and, and claimed that he was God. Now verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Let's pause there for a second. There's many feasts or festivals that the Jewish people celebrated, right? Uh, we talked about the Passover a few weeks ago, and now it, it has been six months since the Passover, and there is this another holiday at hand. It's it, this time. It's called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tents. And a lot of holidays for the Jews nation were tied to their freedom from Egypt and, and their journey into the Promised Land, and remembering how God provided a way out and just celebrating those things and this particular holiday was one of the largest feasts that the jewish people celebrated so here's the context of this feast god had freed the israelites from slavery and they go into the wilderness on the way to the promised land while they're in the desert they're living in what tents right And not because they're, like, camping, but because, you know, they don't have a home. And without a home, they also lack two other necessary necessities of life, water and food. And during this time, they leaned heavily on God's provision for both of those things. And God gave them both of those things, right? Like, first, God gave them manna for food. Each morning, they would go and collect this bread-like stuff and have food to eat, And then God provided water to Moses hitting a rock and water coming out of it. The most important part of all of this is that God was with them. He would lead them by the cloud during the day, and that cloud would become a pillar of fire at night. During this time, they would constantly depend on God for provision. As they finally made it to the promised land. In Leviticus 23, verse 42 and 43, Mo- Moses is passing on God's instruction about all the celebrations for them, and he talks about this feast, feast of booths, uh, and he says this in verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, and you're Generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And and this is what they did. They would leave their home for a week and they would live in tents. This is like this huge party where no one goes home. This is like a church-wide camping trip for seven days. And because uh, there was not necessarily a religious obligation, everyone would want to come to this party, to this celebration. And we don't know exactly the number of people coming to this feast, but we know that around 50,000 people came to the Passover. And that, that there were more than that during this feast. And they'll share stories about how God provided the manna, they would share how God provided water for them. And they would share how they would, that there was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And they, and they are camping. And while they camp, they would build campfires. And those fires would light up the skies at night. And it would just remind them of God's presence. They would eat bread throughout the week because God gave them manna. And they would have this special emphasis on water too since God provided water for them. At the temple, the priest would lead them through a pouring out of water. They would probably recite Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26 that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Bless, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And all of this is the context. Of this celebration. So this is what's going in the background of our story. And and so let's jump in now. Verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus Jesus' half brothers think he should go up to Judea, to Jerusalem to this feast because no not only is everyone going going but he can show off. Like every magician needs an audience and there's a lot of people at this feast. But look at the details next verse. Read next verse with me. It says for not even his brothers believed in him. So his brothers are like, go there, Jesus, show yourself, prove yourself, because because we don't believe that you are the Messiah, and this will expose you as a fraud. Uh, they're challenging him, saying, if you are the Messiah, go make it public. Uh, what what are you trying to hide? In verse six, Jesus says this to them. He says. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its evil works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And So so he says this, my time has not yet come. This is not the first time Jesus uses this phrase, right? Like the first time at the at the wedding in Cana, when his mother tells him that they have no wine. So this is in chapter 2, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, talking to his mom, says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So the same kind of language appears in the next chapter from chap- the chapter we started studying. So they were seeking to arrest him. And this is chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. And eventually the the nature of the statement changes to this in chapter 12 eventually we'll study this in verse 23 of chapter 12 and Jesus answered them the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified So the hour is coming is referring to this final sign that Jesus will perform for humanity. He will offer his life on the cross for our sins. Jesus is God and he knows that there's only one way to defeat death and defeat sin for us. He has to offer his life, his righteous life on the cross. He has to offer his righteous life in place of ours, in place of our sins, in place of our iniquities. But it's his timing. That's why he can say a few chapters later, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is here for me to go to the cross to die for you. And he uses the same phrasing in verse 8, right? You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. I'm not going to die on the cross for your sins yet. But listen, you don't have to worry about that. You go and enjoy the feast. The world won't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that that its works are evil. And I love what Jesus does here. He he, he provides himself as the answer for the sin of the world, but he's not shy to call out the sin, right? He's not shy to call the sin out. He's saying, they'll hate me because I testify about it, testify about their sin, our sin. In other words, we can't interact with Jesus and not have our sins exposed. Jesus exposes sin and he also dies for those sins. Tim Keller puts it this way, quote, God sees us as we are loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, but by His grace, He does not leave us where we are. He doesn't leave us because He loves us and He shows us what needs to change. He exposes and then He's the great physician who heals. And that's at the heart of Jesus saying, I'm I'm going to the cross to die for you soon, but because I care about you, I won't leave you in your sin. What is Jesus exposing in your life today or right now? What is Jesus exposing? Remember, he does not leave us as we are. He's working on us because he loves us and accepts us, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that Jesus did on the cross. So now back to our story. Verse 10. But after his brothers have gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus goes, but he's in the background. And verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus is undercover. It's kind of like the show Undercover Boss, right? Except Jesus was like the OG of Undercover Boss, right? Um, maybe he was wearing like oversized glasses or maybe he fixed his hair differently. But People didn't recognize him, but he is going as undercover and he hears people talk about him. Some are like, yeah, he's a good man. And others are like, no, he's leading people astray. But he can, it's pretty easy to see how divided the crowd is. And in this division, in the midst of this division, Jesus gets up and starts teaching in the temple. He takes off his oversized glasses and then maybe maybe even lets his man bun down. And now everyone sees him goes, oh, that is Jesus. And, and he starts teaching in verse 15 So Jesus. Answer them, and uh, verse fifteen. The Jews therefore marvelled, saying, "How is it that this man has learned uh, when he has never studied?" And verse sixteen. So Jesus answered them, "My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority." One who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet no, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So they're like, the the, the Jews are like, which seminary did he go to, or how does he know so much? And, and, he, and Jesus' answer is twofold. First, he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He could have said, my teaching is this, is this awesome teaching because I am God, and, and, but he knew his audience. He understood that they would not have continued to listen to him or they would have become angry with him like they were the last time he equated himself to God. Instead, he knew they respected the prophets, the messengers God had sent. So he says, my education is from the one who sent me. The words are not my own authority, but but these words are of God's authority. I didn't learn in one of your seminaries, but God himself taught me, and these are the very words of God. So if you knew who God was, then you would know these words. And in fact, if you really were seeking the will of God, then you would know that he has sent me. And that's Jesus' first reason. Uh, his second reason is in verse 19. And he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus brings back an argument that happened for us a few chapters ago. If you were, if you were here with us, you remember that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and then the religious leaders questioned him. He, he elevated the conversation to the fact that God is allowed to work on the Sabbath and he is God. And so since then, they have wanted to kill him. And now Jesus is saying, My authority is coming from God, and if you knew God, you wouldn't want to kill me. In fact, don't you know the law? Moses told you murder is wrong, yet you still find a way to justify yourself in wanting to kill me? And in the process of justifying yourself, you have, you have actually came to think you are right. So how to law-keeping religious leader, break the law so bluntly. It almost seems crazy, right? Like, how is this even part of the story? But it's possible because of self-righteousness. It's possible because of self-righteousness. And if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we wouldn't be shocked at how they got there because at some level, we all are so good at justifying ourselves. We're so good at convincing ourselves that the life we live is good enough because, quite simple, if we didn't think that it was good enough, then we, wouldn't, we would change it, right? And so we all think of ourselves as good people. And with that comes certain rules that we obey so that we can consider ourselves as good, good enough people or a good enough person. If I eat well enough, or I I love well enough, or if I parent well enough, or I stay busy enough, then I'm enough, and, and I'm living the life that I signed up for. And the law is this broad term, but it spells out how we should behave and what will happen to us if we don't behave that way. But it's not just do this and don't do that, but if you do this, like eat the right food, or run every day, or go to church, then you will be considered a good citizen or a good person. And, and if we're not careful in this conversation, we place a special blessing on those who do the right things and a curse on those who don't do the right things. And here's the problem with all of this. The problem with all of this is your heart. Your and my heart. Your heart knows what it should do, but it doesn't give us the ability to do it, or at least not in the long run. Uh, if my kids are disobeying me, and I'm trying to talk to them, but I'm starting to lose my cool, it doesn't matter how many times Sarah tells me to chill, I won't chill. Even though I know I should chill, But hearing the law doesn't help in that moment. And Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah calls it, calls it out when he said that our hearts are deceitful it's deceptive listen self righteousness is so deceptive that it even has a twin i don't know what to call it but it's just it's self righteousness against those who are self righteous like it's a twin of that. Uh, like if you grew up in a conservative home and there's a chance you might want to react to your parents' rule-keeping older brother mindset and switch to the other side of the rule-breaking young brother. So it sounds like this. I know I don't ha- have my life together, but you think you do. I know I'm not good, and you think you are, and that makes me better than you. And that, this twin screams that I'm just better than you. That's self-righteousness as well, right? That's the self-righteousness twin just acting like self-righteousness. And the reason, the reason I camped out here, the reason I stopped and kind of started talking about self-righteousness and just unpacking it a little bit is because that's the climate, the atmosphere, uh, the, the, the everyday life of our society right now. I do what is right. And I elevate myself and degrade others. I live the right way. I obey or maybe disobey the rules surrounding COVID-19. And I am the right one. And others are wrong. You see, self-righteousness can mask our deceitful hearts. And Jesus is exposing the sin behind it. In fact, the religious leaders wanted to compare themselves to the tax collector and the prostitute, and Jesus makes them compare themselves to himself, the righteous one. So how are your rules of life compared to the righteous one? How are your rules of enoughness compared to Jesus? Think about it. Our text doesn't stop there, does it? No, it moves on. So let's finish this last four verses, starting verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but it was from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of the Sabbath I made a man whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with the right judgment. So the the crowd seems to deny this claim by saying you you have a demon who who is seeking to kill you, but Jesus just keeps pressing in on their self-righteous hearts brings up the healing that he did on the Sabbath and compares this healing to circumcision. They would circumcise on the Sabbath, but, but they're upset that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus is basically saying both are ways to bless others. Both are ways to care for others. Both are ways to show grace. Yet you're upset because your self-righteous heart is deceiving you. Stop judging by appearance, but judge correctly. And I think that this is relevant to us. This is relevant to us. How do we treat people who don't live according to our standards of what's right? How do we treat people who don't live according to our standards of what's right? For the Jewish leader, circumcision on the Sabbath was fine, but not healing. So where are you setting up your own standard for what's good and what's bad? Uh, What are you okay with and not okay with? And how have you been judging the other side? The self wants to be the standard of right living, and it pokes its ugly head when someone does something different from us. I I can apply so much COVID here, but look within. Are you the standard of what is right and wrong? Now, another question you can ask is this, do you excuse in yourself what you accuse in the other? So, do you excuse in yourself what you accuse in the other? The Jewish leaders could circumcise on the Sabbath, but Jesus couldn't heal on the Sabbath. So, they can do it, others can't. So, have you been judging, accusing others of something, yet you have excused that in your own life? For example, have you been accusing someone on one side of the political spectrum for something, but you're doing the same thing on the other side? Have you been judging someone for an addiction when you are addicted to something else? Have you accused your spouse of pride when you're letting it letting it go unchecked in your own heart? Right? I can go on and on with examples there. That's a self-righteousness putting up its blinders. And listen, Jesus is exposing some ugly parts of our heart today. He is. That's that's what this text is doing to all of us. It's exposing that. So what's, what's our hope in all of this? The hope is that the hour does come, right? And Jesus goes to the cross to die for those sins. So Jesus doesn't just expose our sin. He goes and dies for our sin. The answer is not to try harder or roll up your sleeves or to say, no, I don't have self-righteousness. No, it's to look within to see that self-righteousness that all of us somewhat have. And then look at Jesus who is the righteous one for you. Jesus is the one who gives you all of his righteousness when you put your hope in him. It's only when you see that beauty of the righteous one dying for you, it's only then you are okay with him exposing your sin because you know he will heal you. So I say today look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the one who died for you. Look at the one who gives you grace that reaches farther than your sin. Look at the one whose grace reaches farther than your self-righteousness. I bring those sins and that self-righteousness to him and let him heal you. Because he is the good father who does that. So let me pray and you join me in prayer uh, praying for these sins in your life right now let's, let's pray father we come to you and we are grateful that you're a god who who heals our hearts you're a god who also exposes our hearts and you don't leave us in that exposure the pharisees did but you don't you you expose our sin and then you you say, I died for you. That's beautiful. That's the gospel that we believe and rest in. God, I pray that in the moment of whoever is watching this, God, right now, I pray that if there's some exposure that you've been doing in people's hearts, God, I pray that, that that they look at you. That you cause their hearts to look at you and for you to pour out your grace and heal Thank you for a text like this that that can cause us to uh, look within, to realize our self-righteousness, to realize our sinfulness, and even the two-facedness of our lives. And to fall at your feet, and at the same time, this text just gives us uh, the fact that you heal us, that you died for our sins. So thank you. Pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus Christ.